Frank mentioned that I was one of the early walk-in collaborators uh, with CCNMTL. Um, I think I was more, could be more properly described as one of the early nudges. Um, my, and my starting point is, I think, very, very different. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our school because it's a, an utterly different universe than the no pun intended than the one that uh, in which David uh, works. Um, and our starting point in being interested in uh, CCNMTL cooperation and collaboration with us was actually much more heavily on the teaching side than on the student learning side. Not to say it's one or the other, but uh, our school, is told, it's a it's one-year program. We have several different one-year programs now, but they're pretty intensive and short. Um, our entire enrollment is less than half of the number of students that are in this one course, in the Frontiers of Science course. Um, our faculty are almost universally drawn from the profession. So it skews their approach to teaching in several important ways. One, 90% have never taught before, anywhere. They may have guest lectured, but as those of you who are in the classroom on a regular basis know, guest lecturing is like being an uncle. You know, as soon as the baby cries, you say, I'm out of here. Um, um, and because of the high level of uh, experience and professional attainment we insist upon before hiring anybody, it is the second or sometimes their third career. So they enter the school, the average age of our hires is remarkably high. We have, not, it's not uncommon for us to have assistant professors in their late 50s <clears throat> because they just arrived on the campus when they were 54 or 55 years old. Uh, we had a recent tenure case of someone who was 63. Um, <clears throat> so at the same age, other units of the university may be attempting to incentivize retirement. We've got new teachers without a tradition in pedagogy and and frankly, to make it more challenging, um, they come from a business uh, that is journalism, which is a very kind of top-down organization where there's a, a believed to be, the, 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 the urban myth is it's a right answer and a wrong answer to things, and where everyone is trained in this, a certain mode of decision-making or expecting someone above them in the chain of command to make the decisions for them. And it's a very difficult transition for them into the classroom. And to say, you know, we want you to uh, empower your students to think. Uh, we want you to challenge them with a range of ideas. But, but I almost have to uh, beat it out of them uh, that your role is not primarily to be the holder of all the answers. That an appropriate course is not, you know, I get up in front of a class and I throw out question after question after question and then I provoke them into giving the wrong answers and sort of say, ha, here are the right answers. And out they come. Uh, you know, it's a very discouraging experience for students. 
And I must say, for faculty after a couple of years, it's boring. Uh, so my starting point was, how can we change the dynamic of teaching to make it less a linear process and less the sort of didactic uh, delivery of uh, truths from on high? Uh, and so we've tried various uh, uh, other approaches, uh, some with more or less success, and CC and MTL has partnered with us on them. Our, our big new approach is, um, uh, as Frank mentioned, the case study method, which has really never been tried in any journalism school um, in a formal sense. Uh, one of the other great flaws of, of journalism education and perhaps education in other uh, professional schools which don't have a strong tradition of case study method a la the law school or in some cases the business school um, is teaching by anecdote. And many faculty members regard that as case study. They say, well, I told them all about the time, you know, I told them all about 9-11 and what we were doing in the newsroom that day, and when, when I realized what had happened, and what I did next, and who, I, who did I call, and the phones didn't work, and the printers couldn't get there from Brooklyn, and I, you know, we didn't have enough pulp and paper for the extradition, and the trucks couldn't travel around even if we had to deliver the paper, so what the heck do you do at a newspaper when you can't put out the newspaper? Um, but that's teaching by anecdote, however fascinating it might be, and, we're attempting, um, under the leadership of Nick Lemon, and with a absolutely invaluable help from a young lady sitting right here, Rebecca Reich, stand up so they get to see you. She's actually the person uh, we've hired to help us develop these cases in a very formal way, which means, first and foremost, go out and do your research, report on it. We've spent uh, lots of time, uh, uh, she has particularly, visiting the uh, people involved in the cases, visiting their workplaces, observing, taking notes, taking video. Ryan and a crew went uh, with her to the Washington Post uh, to begin work on this very first uh, project. This is also uh, quite different than David's project in that it's very much in the beta stage. It has not been used in a classroom. You're, you're, looking at the, you're looking at the component parts assembled in a certain way that we think will work, and it has had one tryout. I, I was uh, selected Lucky. Uh, to uh, uh, do a short version of this uh, with our participating students in front of last spring's alumni reunion. Um, it was quite an interesting little adventure. Um, but we're still, it's, this is all still a work in progress, and we hope to develop a curriculum of case studies using uh, these kind of uh, teaching and learning uh, tools to enhance, and as I say, the teaching as much as the learning. Uh, you can't, I, I think we can't do uh, one without the other. Uh, so let me ask you, before we, just before we go this, how many of you read the Washington, or have, have read the Washington Post or lived or live in the Washington area. Okay, so here's a quick quiz. You're not allowed to answer. Here's a quick quiz. Is the Washington Post a national or a regional newspaper? How many think it's a national paper? Okay, 
And of those of you who believe it's a regional paper, how many of you are, have lived or had some kind of family connection to the Washington, Virginia, Maryland area? Okay. Well, our first presumption, and the presumption of most New Yorkers, in fact, most people outside of Washington, is it's a national paper. It, after all, covers the government of the United States, and that's what we know it for. And the first thing we learned when we went down to begin interviewing the, everyone from the, 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 the literally the top editor of the paper down to subsection assistant sports editor and various other folks, they insisted without exception, we are a local and regional paper. The New York Times is a national paper, he, uh, Len Downey said to me, not, not, not the Post, we're a local paper, uh, Don Graham, the former publisher and his family controls the paper, uh, regional paper. We serve a local audience. It just so happens that the major business in our local town is the government of the United States. But, you know, in theory, if it had been IBM, we'd be all over IBM. So we're in a different business than the New York Times, which was in itself a, a starting point for all of us to ask questions about, okay, how do they, if that's their presumption, how does the paper reflect what they see as their mission? The other thing that you just need to know quickly is that uh, you see on the upper left and, uh, the mission of the front page, um, and it, it's a bit of a misnomer uh, because the, there are, of course, multiple front pages uh, in any newspaper, that is the section pages, um, and we know for a fact, I won't do a poll, that people read papers in very idiosyncratic ways. Everybody turns to whatever their favorite section is and reads it first, puts the rest to the side, and then gets to it later. Um, so the front page of your section, uh, by interest, uh, is really important. And then, of course, the Post has regionalized editions. They have editions in Virginia, in the wealthy Virginia suburbs, and then a little bit further out a metro edition for the District of, of uh, Columbia itself, which is different in a very, uh, very significant ways, not only because the demographics of their readership are very different in the district than they are in Virginia or Maryland. Here's the metro section. Um, but also we discovered the, uh, um, the way people buy the paper is very different. Uh, in the suburbs, people get a subscription. It comes to their doorstep. The city, people buy it from newsstands. And again, we could just test this on Broadway. It's easiest to understand in the magazine business. You walk by a newsstand, you see a stack of whatever your magazine is, and that cover is what's supposed to sell the magazine. The decision to pick it up and buy it is based on that cover and the photography and the layout and the design. So for a large part of their readership, the decision about what goes on the front page is not just an editorial decision, but a crucial commercial decision. Will you buy that paper? And you'll see as we go through this uh, example, some interesting um, confluence and in a couple of cases collisions of, of those two things. Um, so we've tried to uh, we replicate a, a day at the Washington Post. So it begins something like this. First thing in the morning, at about seven o'clock, the senior editors arrive. They get a briefing from something called the, Nash, the 24 hour news desk, 
which is what it sounds to be. These are the people that work all night gathering information. They kind of brief the editors and say, well, this happened overnight, or these are the most interesting things we think will happen today. So the editors can start to think how they assign reporters. And of course, intrinsically tied to that decision is what's going to go on the front, because we're going to assign our better reporters to the things that we believe have a higher priority, the things we believe that by late, late tonight or 24 hours from now, when this paper we're designing now is being read, will hold people's interest and, and remain the most important thing. Uh, they will then uh, pass that down to uh, their um, section editors. You see national, foreign, metro, financial, and if we scroll down, there's sports and all, there they are. And in each section, those editors, the middle management layer, will go through the same exercise with their staff of writers, reporters, and editors and say, okay, I would like you to do this and you to do that, and also tell me what you're working on, what can you volunteer to the paper. Uh, oddly enough, at the Washington Post, at three o'clock in the afternoon, they ring a bell, oh, just like, just like uh, we did here this morning, uh, to call the editors back together into the conference room for an update on how has everything panned out from what we thought would happen in the course of the day. And they get this series of reports. We're doing well on this story, this other one is dead in the water, or we're gonna to have to hold it for another day, it's not gonna be ready, or the person we thought was gonna be the key source isn't available, or in one lovely case we, we stumbled on about the cherry trees in Washington, which is a big deal in Washington and in the newspaper. Um, a wonderful, it turned out to be an obituary profile about uh, the lady that, um, there's some famous weather, uh, weatherman in, in Washington uh, who, as part of his job, goes on the air and predicts the exact day of peak beauty for the blossoms, so all the tourists and everybody at the front page every year. And, he, and people take this seriously. It's more serious than Groundhog Day, and that's about as serious as it gets. And they stumbled on the story that actually he didn't make that prediction at all. There was some nice little old lady uh, in an obscure bureaucracy in the horticultural department, something like that. And he would just call her up and say, uh, Mrs. Smith, what do you think? And she'd give him the information, and nobody had ever heard of her, and she had died. And in her obituary, so first of all, he was bereft of his, this crucial information, as were the people of, uh, of, of the district. Um, but it turned out her story was a much more interesting one than his. And they stumbled on this, so it threw everything into a tizzy. So anyway, that's generally how they do it. Um, so we're going to now fast forward to uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon um, when they develop something called the budget. Uh, the budget is uh, sort of the top-ranking stories that come up from each section. And at this 3 o'clock meeting, the editors now come back and try and convince, the section editors try and convince the bosses, this is what I think, what, what, what our people think should go on the front. And of course, it's a competition among sections because people's careers rise and fall to some extent on this. So. Let's see what some of our options are for front page. The National Desk brings forward, well, Harmit Karzai, the uh, Afghan president, was in Washington, and there's a, 
They have uh, photos of him with uh, 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 various American leaders, with the President of the United States, that's Bush and, and Karzai walking into the White House. Um, so it's not only a big international story in a time of war, but it has photo support. And in Washington, pictures of the President, whomever here, I mean, perhaps she may be, uh, are an automatic uh, uh, seller. This is a big deal. So th this was one that uh, got a lot of push. So uh, every time we get to a point in the, 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 the discussion in this meeting, uh, and the student wants to know, okay, who are the people that are making the decision? What's their background? How much do they know about the particular kind of story that's under review? And so here's a short bio of Len Downey, uh, who runs the meeting, uh, at least three of the five weekdays uh, every week. Uh, and we have similar profiles of lots of other senior editors. And uh, so here's the Karzai Bush story, which most people are gonna think is pretty important. There's a, here's the top story coming up from Metro. It's an important school story. School stories, as any parent in the room can tell you, are important because they affect everybody's kids, they affect your taxes, uh, they hold communities together or break them apart. So almost anything about schools. And this was a very hot story about how lousy the school system is in the district and there was a funding uh, issue in the, one of the big Maryland suburbs and it had been going on for a while and people are angry and you can see the quote at the end you know, somebody saying, and the second thing is like, you know, God, it's 60 to 70,000 kids who have essentially been leaderless for a year or so. This is a hot button issue in New York or Washington or Seattle or any place else. So they really wanted to run with this. One of the downsides of this story, at least from a decision making que uh, question, was there were evening events around it that is, angry public meetings with the school board, and there was gonna be one. So, not quite sure what was gonna, this hadn't played out yet. This story was still very much uh, in action. The um, sports uh, offered a very interesting set of decisions uh, because, uh, uh, show them the pictures, Ryan. Uh, this is the National Basketball Association finals from last year. Uh, which involved the Detroit Pistons and the, and the Los Angeles, a, a well-deserved thrashing of the heinous Los Angeles Lakers. He said non-judgmentally. Um, um, now here was the question that kept resonating through the paper. Why would this go on the front page? An awful lot of people don't care about professional basketball. And from a local perspective, neither, this is no Washington team or even a Baltimore team, is involved. This is Detroit and Los Angeles. It's in another time zone. It's, you know. Uh, so when we went and asked, uh, Rebecca and I and some students uh, went to meet with the uh, assistant uh, sports editor, a fellow named Vita. We said, what's the deal? Why would this get pushed so hard? He said, well, we had graphics. We had art. Um, and secondly, um, there's a sub-story that only locals would know that is a lot of the best players on the Detroit Pistons who are winning this championship formally played for the Washington team and were traded away. So this was, a, this was a, regarded as a gigantic faux pas by the 
the local management, and that gave it a local angle, they thought, even though the teams themselves were not. So it had art, it had a local angle, and, and, and you know, this is action photography, if you, if you click on those couple. I mean, this is, you know, this is good stuff. Um, and unlike uh, many of the typical stories they get of, well, Bush walking Karzai into the White House, which is a standard trope in Washington. You could just take out Karzai and put in <laughs> Karl Rove. Uh, uh, the, these pictures can be cropped many different ways. They can be shaped. They can be, you know, you can do a lot with this stuff. Um, okay. So th there were some others, but this was the, these were the major contenders for the front. And what uh, Ryan and his crew were able to do for us was to build this matrix of a front page of the Washington Post. Now, we debated whether to have a, a blank page and say to the students, you'll see down the left-hand side, uh, these are actual layouts, we won't show them to you quite yet, uh, that the students made. We gave them these decision points, the real ones. We gave them the real materials that were being considered for the front page. And we said, you designed the front page and explained to us why. There was a hostage story, which by the way had the advantage, I, I'm sorry to say it that way, I'm speaking like a journalist. Um, it was more trenchant because a small child was involved in the hostage taking. And there was again a photograph of that. So, you know, children in danger being rescued by, that's also a sort of a can't-miss story. There's part of, there's the shot that went with it. And we said to them, all right, here, we'll, we'll lay out a sort of a matrix for front page, but you have all these choices as to what you put where, what goes above the fold. Remember, that's the front of what's above the fold is what you see on a stack of papers. That's the selling part of the paper. And uh, let us, you know, we'll design your own and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. So let's put up uh, a couple of the student uh, works. Uh, and uh, uh, here, of course, we don't fill in the, the full text of all the articles because you wouldn't be able to read it and as long as they, we know what story they chose. So this student, uh, Kimberly, chose to put the basketball story on top. And you can see the very small space she gave to the presidents of the United States and Afghanistan <laughs> in the left as compared to an out-of-town basketball game. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, there's um, uh, a hostage. And then there's a story out of uh, the Mideast. Uh, and there was uh, wildfire, there were western wildfires in the United States, New Mexico, Arizona, they had wildfires. And they had a, a, a kind of a policy story about, uh, you know, had the United States now skimped on firefighting resources and why was so much of the public's land burning and what we're going to do about it. Not a local story, more of a sort of a wonky story, but she put that down there. So that's her layout. Here is. Uh, Omar's layout and the president and Karzai replaced the basketball game, uh, although the basketball game is still on page one. Um, but notice some other stuff has disappeared entirely. And if you look carefully at the space that's given, the amount of room that's given to these various things, they, they, they change quite a lot. You just run through them. Uh, this uh, student chose a very highly graphical front page without, you know, with proportionally less text. Uh, so that's a question we had to ask. 
Uh, here's Ralph Nader by Bless His Heart. He made the front page. The debate about this story was they had done several Nader stories in the recent weeks. We had given them a look at the front pages of the Washington Post um, from the preceding days. The, the real day we used was June 16. Uh, and of course, this had just preceded it. Reagan died, and basically for a week, that ran as the front of the page, right? Because the funeral was, one of the funerals was in Washington, and you know, as a, as a consequence, they had all this pent up work they had done that couldn't get into the paper or couldn't get onto the front page. And they were holding all these stories, the wildfire story, and, and, and the question about Nader was, uh, Nader had been on the front page a couple of times in, in recent months. Uh, the, the issue was, had he been the spoil sport who ruined uh, Al Gore's chances to, you know, to, to, to get elected? And, and they were saying, you know, have we done enough Nader? Is there another justification for putting Nader on the front page yet again? Well, so you know, one of six students said, yes, let's get Nader on that front page again. Okay, so this gives you a a pretty good look at the, at the tool. And, and the last thing I want to say uh, before taking whatever questions you might have is, is going through this exercise really changed my own view about, uh, as I say, the sort of teacher-centric classroom. Uh, and, and, and we are now trying, and so far at least, meeting really enthusiastic responses from the Graduate School of Journalism faculty uh, to try this method of teaching. This won't, this won't be our default method, it won't be the only method, but uh, sort of getting the teacher to back out a little bit and say, um, let's do some collaborative thinking and you come up with some of the answers and I'll guide you through the processes rather than let me tell you the answers uh, has been a real revelation for me as a, as a teacher, and, and we hope it will spread to the rest of the faculty. Uh, Rebecca is now working on her, the third in a series of what we hope will be um, six or seven uh, case studies, and we're, we're pleased enough with the way that this worked, and, and absolutely pleased with our collaboration with CCNMTL, that we're actively trying to raise a lot of money to create a case study center inside the journalism school um, so that we have re writers, reporters, case developers, our own people who can work more collaboratively on the, on the uh, technical side with uh, CC and MTL so that we will be publishers of these. And again, as David's mentioned, um, uh, we think that there's a market for this outside of Columbia because in our field, at least, most people tend to look to us as the leading school, and nobody else has ever tried formal case study at all, much less case study in this kind of enriched environment and this participatory environment. So that's what we're up to. Thank you very much. Happy to take questions.